Father, your, your word is truth, and we're excited to be able to look into it. And God, we're asking that not only would we dig into the meat of it with understanding and knowledge, but Father, you want us to walk in this truth, not just know it. And Father, this book is rich, and I ask Father, give us Holy Spirit wisdom to walk in this truth and apply it. And I, I ask Father that we would, as Paul says, walk worthy of the calling that we have received. So, Father, as we learn today, get this down in our spirit, God, that it is something that we live in every day. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, to begin with, I want to start by just a little bit of reflection on the book of Romans because uh, that's 16 chapters. Ephesians is only five chapters. I'm going to give Ephesians what I can today, but I, I did want to start off with talking about two relevant issues in our day. And I'm going to be using two names, a gentleman by the name of N.T. Wright, who has written a book that I guess is going to be put into a series of books entitled The New Perspective of Paul. And he commends this particular book. Both of these gentlemen, Steve Chalk and N.T. Wright, are from England. Um, Steve Chalk is a pastor of a large church, N.T. Wright is a bishop, he, he teaches, um, very well known. Uh, honestly, N.T. Wright has written a classic book in defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he puts himself forth as one in England who seeks to straddle the conservative and liberal perspectives of the Bible, but whenever you do that, and you start leaning in the liberal, liberal direction, that means you lean away from the conservative or orthodox view. And two particular views that I'm going to just look at very briefly, okay? I'm going to read uh, this gentleman's critique. Um, it's several pages long on N.T. Wright's The New Perspective of Paul. But I'm going to pick it up how N.T. Wright has influenced Steve Chalk and actually is one of the gentlemen who commends this book. Two issues, and that has to do with, number one, the penal substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. Yeah. Penal meaning punishment. Why did Jesus have to be punished for me? Substitutionary. Penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, do you understand what I, what I mean by that? So, Jesus was punished. Penal. Substitutionary meaning for me, atonement, so my sins would be forgiven. Penal substitutionary atonement. Very, okay, you get into theological terms when you get into books that are written on a real scholarly level and they don't stop to explain everything through. So penal substitutionary, the other is original sin. Let me just read here. He says, let me close with an illustration of why I think Tom Wright's influence poses such a serious danger to sound doctrine. Now, in the beginning that I'm not reading, he commends N.T. Wright for a number of things. And N.T. Wright has really uh, gone to town in some areas of defending Orthodox Christianity, but he is not Orthodox through and through. And so this is something that concerns him, okay? And so he continues on. When I was in England last month, there was a great deal of controversy there about a new book titled The Lost Message of Jesus, by Steve Chalk, written in 2004. The Evangelical... So that was a while ago. The Evangelical Alliance held a formal debate to discuss the merits and demerits of that book. 
The book contains explicit denunciations of some fundamental doctrines of evangelical Christianity, including the notions of penal substitution and original sin. So, number one, regarding the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Mouthful, but you understand what that phrase means, right? Chalk writes this, John's Gospel famously declares God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How then have we come to believe that at the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son. Chalk says, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. You understand where Stephen Chalk is coming from then in his view of the father punishing his son for me. Okay, He calls that cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events, is what he calls it, morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Now, excuse me, but I have never found that to be a barrier to faith, ever. Do people have some questions about it? Yes. But when they understand what Christ has done, it it does not cause them to charge God with cosmic child abuse unless it's explained wrong or you're talking to someone who disagrees with you, disagrees with penal substitutionary atonement okay and of course then they're going to jump in with their accusations against it I've never come across this now maybe this is just England but I'm letting you know that these two guys have greatly influenced people outside of England so I'm going to continue um Morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards mankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies. Every true Christian needs to understand that the kind, this is the blogger writing now, Um, And he's very conservative, by the way, and um, comes from a very excellent perspective. So I I can't remember the guy's name. He he is reformed in his theology, um, but on these issues, he is solid. Every true Christian needs to understand that the kind of atonement Steve Chalk caricatures as cosmic child abuse is precisely what the Bible teaches. Christ did not bear our guilt, and, excuse me, Christ did bear our guilt and God did punish him for it that and nothing less is what the biblical word propitiation means propitiation means what again okay atonement be specific though for what to satisfy the wrath of God right okay expiation is to wash away sins Atonement to wash away sins, okay? So scripture teaches both, of course. That's how God can justify sinners without compromising his own justice. That's what's at stake here. God's justice. So these, and I'm mentioning this because in our day, there is such great confusion as far as why doesn't God just wave his magical spiritual wand and, and wipe everybody's sins away. What's the big deal? Why God? Why can't God forgive? I mean, I forgive my enemies. Why can't God just forgive his enemies and everybody go to heaven? Okay? Why is it that Jesus even had to die? Why doesn't God just, eh, I'll forgive you? I mean, I don't demand anybody to die 
in order for me to forgive somebody. You see, so what these people are doing is they are bringing God down to our standards of humanness and that is not who God is. God has absolute righteous demands that we cannot because we're sinners. God is the one who therefore can bring vengeance, not us because we are sinners. And so, let me continue on. Um, Okay, so that's how God can justify sinners without compromising his own justice according to Romans 3.26 that talks about this. That is why, excuse me, that is also why the cross was the greatest imaginable display of God's love to unworthy sinners. It is not a display of a father having a hissy fit and a temper tantrum or being this cosmic child abusing father and therefore, oh my goodness, we have to erase this. See, we need to be humble and if scripture teaches it and we don't understand how it melds with God's love but scripture teaches both, guess what guys? We believe both. If if you don't understand how God is completely and totally loving and yet his wrath is poured out against sinners and and as a matter of fact, his wrath actually flows from his love because God is love. And he is, adjective, holy, holy, holy. So the adjective... His attributes flow from his essence. His attribute is holy. His essence is love. Now, did you follow what I just said? So his wrath, his holiness, his justice flows from his love. Now, if we don't understand that, and I'll be the first to raise my hand, I don't completely understand that. Maybe a little bit. When I get to heaven, I'll get the total pic- picture at the total package, and I will, this was awesome. But we, we don't, we, but we have enough And by faith, we don't put God on our standards. And if I don't understand everything about God, I don't get out my big cosmic eraser and erase what God has to say on that. And yet, that that is what's happening in our day. And I'm I'm reading this so you guys understand that these truths are really important. This penal, the fact that God punished his son for me is a display of his immense love. And Jesus said, I lay down my life of my own accord and I take it up again. Jesus did this willingly. This is not just the father smacking his son around against the son's... You know, and Jesus is not some dysfunctional dude that is just saying, come on, hit me again, Dad. I mean, this isn't, this isn't Jesus. All right, He was the most functional human ever and yet he laid his life down according to his father's will. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. You can't get around that. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him, Jesus, the sin of us all. Our sins laid upon Jesus. He was punished so that we would not have to. That is a display of love, not cosmic child abuse. So Now, people use these emotionally charged words or phrases, to pull people in. Oh my goodness, of course, penal substitutionary atonement. If I can even pronounce those three words, that can't be biblical because it's what? Cosmic child abuse. It, it, it's, it's far from it. It didn't even come close to fitting that definition. As a matter of fact, it is the most magnanimous way 
that God has demonstrated his love for us and not just the Father but the Son. Um, greater love has no man than this that a man does what? For his friends. And that's what Jesus did. Laid down his life for us. Okay. Did I see a hand for a question? Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I was wondering like, when you used the term cosmic child abuse, because I've heard that term used before. And like, are these people saying within their theological like framework that Jesus is subordinate to God and that like, he's not fully God? Uh, I, I don't know that. That's not what it's it, what's at stake with you know substitutionary. I think you're just using so those terms, father and son. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> and how it's the father and yeah. son. Really Jesus is subordinate to the father with regard to his authority. Right. So what would he? What would these two guys say? God, the Father, did. Yeah. And what did Jesus do? If if he wasn't crucified for our sins. That is not brought up here. I've not studied Stephen Chalk or N.T. Wright's new perspective on Paul. Um, because N.T. Wright also, the whole article was written because N.T. Wright denies the um, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay. And we talked about that last week. Okay. And the fact that we had to have Christ's righteousness imparted to us because it's not just in God's court of law we are acquitted, that is, proven not guilty, but we are actually, and it must be be this way, established as righteous. But how? On our own acts? Well, what acts of righteousness have we done when, when we turn to Christ? All of those acts, empowered by the Spirit, follow. So, anyway, um, if we're not careful, we're going to confuse James' uh, use of justification and Paul's use of justification. And um, when, when I talk about justification in the theology class, we make a distinction there and you, you see it. Um, but it's 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 very clear. It's it's not an either or. It's both. Okay, and it's just how they use it. Paul uses it in a court of law, and James does not. James, yeah. Anyway, actually, James' point is that Paul was justified by his actions that followed decades later. Chapter fifteen declared righteous by his faith. Chapter twenty-two, when he was going to sacrifice his son. That's what James points to. That's his act of obedience, and that justifies his, himself. Okay, in other words, proves his faith to be genuine by his actions. So anyway, two different understandings. But so, um, where do I go with this? So Jesus had to be punished for our sins. The example of liberal theology, uh, originally established, I would say, by Anselm back in the Middle Ages was that Jesus' demonstration of death on the cross and sacrifice, and that's all it was, was a demonstration or an example of sacrifice, prompts me, look at Jesus' sacrifice. I too can sacrifice, deny self, and sacrifice for others. And in that way, I will sin less and less and less. And therefore, Jesus died for my sins. Okay? Not as a substitute, not that, his, not that the cross did anything that impacted me to convert me or to uh, spiritually change my heart. 
It was all a decision of my own. I am going to stop sinning. And I'm going to start sacrificing and living a Christ-like sacrificial life. And that way Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died so that I would sin less. And that's the liberal perspective. And that empties the cross of its power. Okay, It is an example, and Scripture even talks about it being an example, that prompts me to sin less, yes. But that is not the power that saves me. That is the example that now inspires me to pursue him once I'm saved, once my sins are forgiven. Okay, let's move on here real quickly because I can't spend too much time in. Regarding the doctrine of original sin, Steve Chalk says this, to see humanity as inherently evil and steeped in original sin instead of inherently made in God's image. Of course we're made in God's image. That's not what original sin says. But anyway, inherently made in God's image. And so, listen to this, bathed in original goodness. That we are bathed in original goodness. However hidden it may have become is a serious mistake. So let me read that again. To see humanity as inherently evil and steeped in original sin instead of inherently made in God's image and so bathed in original goodness, however hidden it may have become, is a serious mistake. It is this grave error. It is this, listen, it is this grave error that has dogged the church in the West for centuries. I'm kind of wondering what he means by the West. Um, because to my knowledge, Eastern Orthodox teaches this as well. Um, so it's in the East as well as the West. Um, so, he, well, he, let, me, let me continue on. It's no surprise that, this is the bloggery, it's no surprise that Chalk's book contains endorsements from Brian McLaren and Tony Campolo, the two leading advocates of every postmodern corruption of Christian doctrine. I'm not sure about that, but anyway, it's uh, probably pretty close. Uh, but it may surprise you to learn that the lead endorsement on the book at the top of the front cover is an unqualified endorsement from the Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Um, and, uh, okay, and so this is the endorsement. Steve Chalk's new book is rooted in good scholarship, but its clear, punchy style makes it accessible to anyone and everyone. Its message is stark and exciting. And then the ending comment is this. To true evangelicals, the message of Steve Steve Chalk's book is anything but exciting. It's depressing. It leaves sinners without any hope of true redemption, and it utterly corrupts the message of the Bible. So, and I'm sharing that with you because I want to be cautious whenever... um, Whenever... We bring criticism to somebody else in the church. But when you start denying something like original sin, that I am morally corrupt, that that corruption is a part of me, that Adam's sin made me a sinner, that is what Romans 5.19 says, or as NASB says, it constituted us as sinners, okay? It, it wasn't through a secondary cause. It wasn't because it was a bad example. So guess what? I saw that bad example and I sinned or I see the sin around me. So I sin and that makes me a sinner. That's a secondary cause. Adam's sin directly made me a sinner. He is the primary cause. As a result of me being a sinner, I sin. 
I am not a sinner because I sin. I am, I sin because I am a sinner. That's original sin. The corruption of Adam's sin has stained me. I was birthed in sin, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Those who reject original sin say that that quote from the psalm is metaphorical. It is, excuse me, it's figurative. It certainly does not mean that you go all the way back to a person's conception or birth and they're sinful. He was exaggerating. Well, we find this, what, what do you do? And the heart is desperately wicked beyond cure. Who can understand it? Okay. Well, I right? one person say that that verse refers to how David was conceived, like in adultery or something. Like his father committed adultery, and that's how David was right. born. And say that's why so we would have to be really careful because that means then that that David was conceived this way. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm not aware of David being conceived in adultery. Um, it was the first time I heard of it. And I yeah. Thought it was really weird. But then that would also mean that he inherited that sin from because he says that he was sinful even from the time of conception. Um, So anyway, I I am going to move on, but I I wanted to bring this to your attention because the issues at stake in the gospel, a righteousness revealed from heaven by God for us. What is that righteousness? It is an imputed or imparted righteousness from Christ to us. Uh, Philippians 3 speaks of this, that um, it is that righteousness from Christ I consider all of these rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not with a righteousness of my own, but that which is from Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so this righteousness is from Christ and absolutely necessary. And when we start thinking that man is basically good, then we have the capability of being good and never sinning, ever. Then why do we sin? What is this thing called the flesh that is corrupted? Okay? And, and so it paints a very good picture of man who is not steeped in sin because Steve Chalk even says, yeah, steeped in sin? No. We're in God's image, hidden as it may be. Now, we are made in God's image, but it's broken. And we are in the process of our new man renewing the knowledge, being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. Okay. Any questions before we dig into Ephesians? It did take a little bit longer, but uh, Romans, it's just such a significant book. Okay. As we go through the book of Ephesians, I want us to first just simply say as background that the book of Ephesians, uh, the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon, write those three down, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were more than likely sent at the same time. So written basically at the same time. This is why you see so many parallels between Ephesians and Colossians, okay? That's what was really burdening Paul's heart at the time. Uh, Colossae (coughs) was not planted by Paul. It was planted by Epaphras, who learned it from Paul. Um, Very possibly before Paul arrived in Ephesus, but regardless, Epaphras was a man of God and took the gospel to Colossae, and that's how... The Colossians heard of the gospel, and so Paul is writing them a letter. He sends Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon through a gentleman by the name of Tychicus. And uh, 
Tychicus, uh, also, if I'm not mistaken, was the uh, scribe for the book of Romans. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so I am choosing to place these three books before Philippians. Not that it's some big deal or anything, but Philippians also. So those four books were written while Paul was under house arrest. I think that's going to be the best way to understand how these books, the, the background of them being written. Okay. Um, so Ephesians then would have been written in the earlier part of Paul's imprisonment in Rome between 60 and 62 AD. And then I see Philippians written after it, but regardless, not a big deal. Uh, the main thing is that those four books were written about that time. Paul says in chapter 3 chapter 3 verse 1 for this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles and then chapter he then digresses there but chapter 4 verse 1 as a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received um, and so he gets into this concept of him being a prisoner so that's the circumstances surrounding it um, Philemon lived in Colossae and so that's why those two books went together and if you read the two of them um, you'll, you'll see the connection there All right. okay I want us to realize that Paul uses a phrase in the book of Ephesians five times and it is a phrase that your versions will translate just a little bit differently and in the book of Ephesians he uses it in a, in a, in a very specific he uses it very specifically um, it becomes the backdrop to everything that we have in Christ and it is this phrase in the heavenly places or in the heavenly realms or just literally in the heavenlies okay in the heavenlies we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms or in the heavenlies um, that would be chapter 1 verse 3 chapter 1 verse 20 that he had been that Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated uh, when God exerted which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. And these are parallel verses, by the way. In the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Skipping over to chapter 3, verse 10, it says his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities which would be angelic forces either good or bad uh, in the heavenlies or in the heavenly realms uh, that was the fourth one and then the last one we read in the last chapter verse 12 where he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world um, or the, the world rulers of darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And I think in all fairness, we can conclude that the heavenlies is another is a synonym for the spirit realm, as opposed to the human natural realm. The spirit realm, and I'm not getting off into spiritism or anything like that, the spirit realm is just where 
uh, angels and God and even demons abide. Um, when you start looking at Tartarus, when you start looking at the abyss, I believe these are aspects of that. They are not places. And once you understand that Tartarus and the abyss is not necessarily a place, you start understanding a little bit more how Satan can be bound and yet wander the earth, leading people into temptation. Because demons, Second Second Peter two four says all sinning angels were cast into Tartarus. Um, I'm not going to get into that verse, sorry, but that means every demon was cast into Tartarus, Tartarus being the place of punishment and a place, a holding place. But they still demonize, they still tempt, they still wander the earth because Tartarus is not a place like hell or heaven is a place. It is a realm, it is a spirit realm in which they are locked in bondage and... That's all I'm going to say. If you're interested a little bit more on, on that subject, go to the theology class under demons. Um, maybe even under the, uh, there's a little bit again in um, the millennium that we talk about because Re- Revelation 20 says that Satan was cast into the abyss. What does that mean? Anyway, the heavenly realms then becomes this backdrop of a cosmic battle that we see in chapter 6. And the display of God's glory um, and even the fact that the church is on display to those in the heavenly realms. It becomes the backdrop, the spiritual backdrop for what it means for us to be in Christ. We're going to get to that. Um, So it's a very significant term, very purposeful term, and Paul uses it five times in this book with that intention because there is so much here about this cosmic battle or this uh not i don't want to just say battle but this cosmic victory that we have in christ though there's a battle that goes on okay so we'll get into that in a moment i want to start by um digging into this uh this book by focusing on something for just at least a little bit, and that is this concept of election. Uh, It is one of the aspects and the highlighting aspect of the blessings that we receive in Christ. Those blessings um, probably could be extrapolated to the end of chapter 2, though they they may well end at chapter 2, verse 10. But this idea of every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ in the heavenly realms starts off, this list starts off with the fact that he chose us in him. So I'm going to write that up here. He chose us in him, in Christ. Talks about how in love he predestined us. Talks about in verse 11. Uses in the, in the English, I don't know what the NASB says. I, I can't remember but in the NIV, it says <coughs> that, uh, sorry, I'm on the wrong page there. In him, we were also chosen. This word chosen is a different word than in verse 4. It actually means allotted an inheritance or allotted as an inheritance. Do you see the difference, though? Okay. So it's either that we are, as the saints, are that inheritance or that in, we have been chosen for an inheritance. The, the word, it, it could go either way. Can it be 
Um, it's... Uh, I, I would venture to say no, but I am not going to make a big deal because the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches that we are his portion, we are his inheritance. It even says that in Ephesians. But then also that we have an inheritance, which it also teaches in Ephesians. I mean, we have an inheritance. um, And that inheritance is because we are in Christ. Um, And... Yes, verse 11. And then in verse 11, right after that, it says, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Um, let me just say this, that the, the reason why this concept of election is ever mentioned in Scripture, there are two reasons. Um. There may be some minor reasons, but I'm just going to suggest you two main reasons. Number one, it highlights God's grace and God's glory. God's grace and God's glory. When it comes to our salvation, God initiated, not me. When it comes to election, we're going we're gonna to get into this in this phrase, he chose us in him. It causes me as one of the elect, and I know I'm one of the elect because I have trusted in Christ. His Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance in the saints. And there is an assurance as that spirit cries within me, Abba, Father. Okay, Romans 8. And so I know that I am part of the elect because of his spirit in me, bearing witness with that. And that then causes me to praise him. This, fr- this phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of his, or to the praise of the glory of his grace. Okay, glorious grace, the glory of his grace, however you want, NASB says to the glory of his grace, NASB or NIV, his glorious grace. Um, that is the focus of it and it brings God glory. The fact that he chose us before the creation of the world And that brings him glory. The second thing, and Romans 9 highlights this, is that it leaves no argument whatsoever, regardless of humanism in our day, that somehow our works will impress God enough to save me. Because it is not by works. It is by grace through faith. Not by works so that no one can boast. Because works is something that I do, that I bring to the table, and if I earn my salvation, I have something to boast about. But not only because of faith do I have nothing to boast about, but because of God's grace. And going all the way back to before time, God chose me, and that highlights his grace all the more, so that as a believer, I stand in complete awe. God, you chose me. Now, how do we understand though this concept of election and there is the calvinist view and there is the arminian view and you're going to find out within seconds which side i lean towards to understand election we can do a number of things that we don't have time to do and so i'm going to be very brief on this romans not 8 
the section I purposely did not get into because we're going to do that today. It says, um, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Now, what then, because that makes my election, God choosing me, rooted in God's foreknowledge or the fact that he foreknew me. What does that word mean? From the Arminian perspective, that means God looked down the tunnel of history, saw Mike Curtis would believe in Jesus, and based on that, he chose me. That makes God's election based on my choosing him. God chose me. Why? Because I chose him. And nowhere in scripture do you see that as a truth. You, you just don't. Okay? That, exactly. That, that, let, let me not touch on that. Okay? Because that may well get into the fact that as apostles, Jesus chose them. Not that he chose them from the foundations of the earth. So let me not get into that and, and wrestle with that passage. Sorry. Um, and, and in all fairness to the Arminian perspective. So the, the idea is that when, when you talk about foreknowledge, that can mean, just like knowing something beforehand, that can mean the knowledge of facts. But when the verb to know, and this is just simply to know beforehand, the verb to know a person never means to know about them. It never means that in Scripture. That verb is always relational in its intention. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Does that mean that Jesus never knew about these people? Or does it mean that Jesus never had that relational bond with them? It means that he never knew them relationally. They never trusted in him. And as a result, he never initiated that relationship. Okay? There was no relational bond there. They even cast out demons, prophesied, and worked wonders. And, and sorry, but I never knew you. That's, that's a pretty deep passage. Because the out, outward evidence of that, they did not do the will of the Father. Okay? If I truly believe in Jesus, this is James' concept of justification now. They truly, if we truly believe in Jesus, it becomes evidenced by our action. Doesn't mean I stop sinning. Doesn't mean that I don't bring in some of the old man into my relationship with Christ. In Ephesians, it says, put to death whatever belongs to your old man, your old nature, your old self, okay? So the old self is crucified. There's still remnants and still possibilities. Even as we have crucified the flesh, Galatians 5, we talked about that, we still wrestle with it. We have power over it, though, and that is the point. We have power over our old lifestyle, that old me. That old me is dead, and yet it can speak to me from the grave, if you will. Hope you can appreciate how I worded that. Um, So this concept of foreknowledge, God foreknew me, is relationally based. It does not and cannot mean that God looked down the tunnel of history and knew about me that I would believe in him, and that's why he chose me. Rather, he, in his love, initiated this 
love relationship with me, whatever that would even mean. And in that context of God's love, he chose me. All right. So God chose me, not based on the fact that I would believe in him, but he chose me not on what I would do, but he chose me, as it says in the very next verse, in love, in love. Out of this initiating love and knowing me, he chose me. Not because he looked down the tunnel of history and so on. All right. Now, I've already told you where I stand. I do not lean in the Arminian direction. I don't see that bringing glory to God's grace in any way. It tends to put man on the pedestal, and Scripture does anything but that. However, I do part company with Calvinists when it comes to talking about this to a certain degree. For example, Calvin believed in double predestination. He believed that not only did God predestinate some to eternal life, but he predestinated some to hell. And Scripture does not substantiate that. We're going to, if we have time, we're going to come back to that in Romans 9. But the more modified Calvinist view, which comes much closer, is that God simply bypassed them with his grace. That is the reprobate, those who end up not believing and going to hell. Now, I'm sure that so far there are probably still some questions, especially if you've never wrestled with this concept of predestination, and I don't blame you. So just hang on for a little bit longer and let me get into this next step, okay? In Scripture, I want you to notice something. It never says that God chose me unto faith or chose me to have faith or chose me to believe in Jesus. My faith is never the object of his election. What does that mean? We're going to actually get into it when we get into this phrase that I have up here on the board. He chose us in him. However, it does say that he predestined us to be conformed into the likeness of his son. To be conformed into the likeness of his son flows from my faith though, doesn't it? And so because of that, the Calvinist says that God chose me to believe. That's just not biblical, though. God did not choose me to believe. He chose me to be conformed to his image. He chose me or appointed me unto eternal life. Um, What would be some other phrases? There's numerous of them in Scripture. Um, He chose me, it says here, he predestined me to, um, or, or he chose me to be holy and blameless. That follows faith, but it doesn't say he chose me to believe. He chose me unto those things that follow my faith. He predestined me to be adopted as his sons, verse 4. He chose me to be saved. That follows faith, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He chose me unto obedience, which follows faith, 1 Peter 1.2. He chose me to be rich in faith, James 2, 5. Um, anyway, we could go on. But it never says that God chose me to believe. Now, let's look at this phrase right here. He chose us 
in him. I want to break us. I want this to be broken down into two sections. He chose us and in him. The fact that we are in him highlights this concept of faith. Okay? It highlights this concept of faith. Does it mean he chose us who are in him? Uh, who are... Does it... And, and I'm trying to figure... Because this phrase, he chose us in him, in our mindset, is an awkward phrase. It's an awkward phrase. It is hard to understand. Does it mean he chose us to be in him? That means he chose us to be in him, meaning that his choosing caused us to be in him. Um, he, what would be some other phrases? Hang on one second. Um, Oh, I did not write them down. Well, that's great. Um, forgive me, I have it written down in another in the theology book, and I did not. Uh, let me see, um, because there's some phrases that you can insert in here that makes um, he chose us because we are in him. That makes me being in him cause me to choose cause him to choose me. That would be the Arminian perspective. The Calvinist, do you understand? He chose us because we are in him. Uh, he chose us to be in him would be the Calvinist perspective. I'm going to suggest to you this, and we're going to look at two ways in which we're, we're going to see this equation, if I can put it that way, in which we're going to see, if we're going to call this first section, he chose us, A, and in him, B, it is neither this way nor this way. He chose us does not cause me to be in him, and being in him does not cause him to choose me. This is the Calvinist perspective. This is the Arminian perspective. I'm going to simply say this. He chose us with a view to or in connection to or relationship with us being in him. These are parallel. I don't know how to do parallel here except like that, okay? These are two, con God's election only makes sense with me being in Christ. Outside of Christ, the concept of election is rendered null and void. It is not understandable. It is not even explained in scripture. It's not even spoken about in scripture. Election is only spoken about in connection with those who are in faith. So the question, what about those who are not chosen? Number one, that's not a biblical term. Those who end up going to hell, were they just not chosen? You are now starting to ask a question that is outside the parameters of Scripture, and Scripture never answers that question. And I'm going to give a suggestion why in a moment. But it is, it, it's a non-issue. It's a valid issue for us because we're curious and as humans, we, I mean, if I'm elected, what about all those people who end up going to hell? Is it because God elected them to hell or is it God bypassed them with his choosing and just didn't choose them? The answer, to, the answer I'm suggesting is, according to this phrase, my election and my faith are interconnected with one another, neither causes the other, and 
in this connection, the concept of non-election is a non-issue. It, it, it's not spoken about. It is not referred to. It makes, I would venture to say that when we get to heaven to understand it, it would not make sense. So you cannot ask a question about those not elect because election is only in tandem with my faith of being in him. That is the only way that we can understand election. So again, non-election or God bypassing people with his grace, scripture does not teach that. I'm just saying that there are things that God has chosen to reveal to us, and this is not one of them. That is election outside of faith or non-election. It's a non-issue. You can look at uh, how this phrase is used in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. That's the verb, blessed. So he, I'm going to write it down. He blessed us in the heavenly realms in Christ or in him. So there we have, excuse me, I forgot to insert the word us. So here we have that same A and B, except instead of he chose us, it's he blessed us. Instead of in him, it's in Christ, which is basically saying, saying the same thing. Now, did he bless us to be in Christ? Does being in Christ flow from his blessing? Or does the fact that we are in Christ cause God to bless us? I'm going to suggest to you that neither of these are, it's not a cause and effect relationship. I am in Christ and in Christ I am blessed. There is no understanding of blessing outside of Christ. Even as there is no understanding of election or non-election outside of Christ. It becomes, if we could make it a math term, it becomes like trying to understand infinity. It is, it's a non-issue. It's an unreal thing, if you will. Okay? Not something to even be discussed, though there is tremendous discussion on this issue. Election makes no sense outside of faith. Jim. Okay, so blessed in Christ. Yes. We have every spiritual blessing. in Christ, and he blesses us because we're in Christ. Okay, that's a cause and a relationship, and I'm not sure that's what that verse is saying. Because you could also say that by being in Christ, he blessed us, or part of the blessing of God is that we are in Christ. So there can be an argument for it, for A causing B or B causing A. But his point is not that. His point is, in Christ, I have every spiritual blessing. Outside of Christ, God's blessing is a non-issue. It's, it's not there. It doesn't exist. The point is, if you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. It's not that the blessing caused me to be in Christ or for me being in Christ caused me to be blessed. They run in tandem. Okay, we see the very same thing in chapter two, verse six. Okay, okay. I don't see how B doesn't cause A because if you're not in Christ, you're not blessed. Okay, but you see, to, in order to be in Christ, maybe the argument could be could be God had to bless you with His grace by choosing you. All right, we go back to this then. So God had to initiate the blessing in order for us to be in Christ. So, but with he chose us, it gives a time frame for that. Before the foundations of the earth, yes. Right, which is before we were ever in Christ. Okay, well, I'm going to come to the issue of time in a moment, but, okay. 
So if we're going to look at it, yeah, let me just hang on with that answer. Because that's a valid question, okay? Let me, let me look at chapter 2, verse... Um, and, I, and I do need to hurry with this. I'm sorry. And God raised us up with Christ, chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we are, he seated us, excuse me, he raised us up and he seated us, okay? This is what God did, blessed us, chose us, raised us up, seated us in him, in Christ Jesus, okay? And then I'm going to suggest to you that Neither one of those causes the other. Being in Christ does not cause me to be raised up, and being raised up does not cause me to be in Christ. It is simply saying, in connection with me being in Christ, I am raised up and seated with Christ. There is no cause and effect relationship here. I'm sorry? So they're, they're like all-inclusive? Like, you can't have one without having the other? Correct. So I'm going to suggest this, that it is not that God chose me to believe, but his election and my faith run in tandem with one one another. They are inseparable. However, because I believe, I become obedient, I am sanctified, I am adopted, I am... Uh, conform to the likeness of Christ. I have eternal life. On the other hand, those are the very things that God elected me unto or chose me unto. All right? Now, I am only saying this because, let me be blunt, it is a foolish thing to begin to argue questions about those who are not elect. That is a non-concept in the Bible. Election only becomes an issue understandable and brings praise to God with reference to those who believe. And it cannot be said that God chose me to believe or the Arminian perspective, because I believe God chose me. Okay? But I do lean towards the Calvinist perspective on this. And, and, And I used to be at one point, a five-point Calvinist. And as I was going through my 20s and just really wrestling, God, what does your script, because that's the tradition I grew up in, what do your scriptures really have to say about this? Um, I, I had to be as fair as I, I believed that I could be. And I began to see differences in what I was taught as a Calvinist and what scripture had to say. And then balancing, well, what about the Arminian perspective? And just sorting through this. And... Um, Dr. Rodman Williams, in his classic Charismatic Theology uh, volume, of, uh, he, he, he talks about this. Um, and uh, anyway, excellent discussion there. My point, though, is to try and help put at ease these questions that we have. Now, let me just mention this one thing, and maybe it will help us understand it just a little bit more. When did God choose us? Okay, before God created anything. Time is a created thing. Now, jokingly, it's been said time, God created time so that everything doesn't happen at once. Okay? If there's no time, everything would happen at once, right? 
Well, that's our understanding of time. Maybe in God's understanding of time, which we which could be vastly different than ours, there is still a sequence of events, but his time is still very different than our time that he has created. We don't know. But God chose us outside of our concept of time. So the God who is outside of time chose me who has no clue what being outside of time is like and I am encumbered by this thing called time. So the God outside of time chose me inside of time. How do you even talk about that? What does it mean to be outside of time? Maybe to be outside of time, this whole concept is completely laid to rest and God laughs when the Calvinists and Armenians start discussing it and, and I think he, he, he might rebuke the Arminians for not wanting to uh, see it as, as Scripture lays it out a little bit more. But Calvinists, I think, press it to an undue point. Um, but the truth is, it makes total sense in God's eyes. Because we're talking about something as those who have, n- who have only experienced life inside of time. We have no idea. It's like asking a blind man, please describe the color red to me. Well, if he's been blind all of his life, he has no clue what red looks like. He has no clue what blue looks like. He has no clue what you look like. He might be able to feel your face and get an idea, but for color, no clue. It's outside of his his experience. So when we're talking about election that's outside of time and therefore outside of our human experience, I think we need to approach this subject with a little bit more humility than what's being discussed on the pages of theology today. Um... And I'm just saying election and faith make sense, not as one causes the other, but in connection with one another, okay? And outside of that connection, neither of them make sense. Yeah? So would it be fair to come at it from like a statistics perspective and say that there is a relational correlation between them, but not causality? Yeah. Most of the time, if something is relationally correlated, it's a third thing that is causing both of them and God hasn't revealed to us what that is and we won't know until we're in heaven. Okay, I'm, I'm open to that. I don't know about the third cause, but relational or, and like causation, there's a correlation and not a causation. Um, so, yes. But the fact that I'm being made in the image of Christ, that is caused by God's choosing me. Right. But it's also caused by my faith in Christ. Okay, so I would say yes. I don't know about the third entity there, though. Because scripture doesn't talk about that, so I don't know. All right. Um, I realize this is like a huge subject, and I have kind of just put my toe in the deep end. And I'm saying, hey, let's go on to another pool. And that's not really fair, but there is so much that can be discussed in this. Romans 9, I'm not going to look at the passage I was hoping to be able to, because I'm looking at the time, and it's saying you can't do that. So, because there's so much awesome stuff in this book. Let's then look at this prayer in chapter 1 that Paul talks about. And he's, there are three things that he prays for the Ephesian people. And, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but in the earliest, one of the earliest manuscripts that we have Ephesians, there is, the, the word Ephesians is or is it Ephesians or those in yeah saints in Ephesus the word Ephesus is not there it's blank 
At the end of Colossians, Paul tells the Colossians, when you're done with this letter being read, give it to the Laodiceans, and then you read the letter from the Laodiceans. And that letter from the Laodiceans, and Laodicea, Hierapolis, and, and Colossae are three cities very close to one another. I can't remember how many miles to the east of Ephesus. But it's very possible that as they came to Ephesus, the book of the letter to the Ephesians, our book I'm reading here, was read to them, and then it was starting it then was given to the Laodiceans, and then they traveled to Colossae. And they read the letter there, and then they left the two letters in those respective cities. So the letter that he's referring to the Laodiceans may indeed be this letter we're studying today. But it was it's more than likely a circular letter. He spent three years there, and no names are mentioned. Whereas Roman, the book of Romans, that he knew a bunch of people, but he'd never been there, it's, it's the longest. But in every letter Paul writes, he says, greet this, these people, this person, that person. You don't see that in Ephesians. And with him being there the longest of any city, you would expect it, and it's not there. Um, there is not this tone of love that Paul expresses like he did with the Thessalonians and Philippians and so on. Um, and it's not because he doesn't love them. And it, it's best explained that this is a circular letter. Okay. All right. Um, so where were we? The, the prayer that he is giving... He, he, he prays for them, verse 18. He says, I pray also that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. So God, open and give them illumination on these three things in order that you, the Ephesians, may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not for the saints, but that the saints are God's inheritance. And it's a glorious inheritance. The saints are glorious. He wants them to know this. By the way, the more you recognize the glory that is in Jesus' church, the greater the unity there will be, and that's exactly what chapter 4 gets into. All right. Um, And then lastly, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Power is dunamis. There's another word... Uh, might and strength. So three words for power, strength, might. Three words for this used here. We're going to see those in the last chapter, but here's this then, <coughs> and uh, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead with this dunamis power that he wants us to experience. That's what Paul, I want you to experience this. I want you to um to know this incomparably great power. He then, I mean, this letter is filled with this power. (laughs) He also wants us to have that very same power, verse 18 of chapter 3, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love, not just know about this love, but to intimately know and experience this love uh, that surpasses knowledge. So again, um, He then says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, okay? And that power is transforming us. And it is that same power that's transforming us that raised Jesus from the dead, okay? And it is that power that raised Jesus up from the dead, seated him in the heavenly realms or in the heavenlies, 
at the right hand of the Father. So that now Jesus, because he has earned our salvation, he has resumed his throne where he was before he left his glory to become a man. He now resumes that throne at the right hand of the Father, but there's something different because now he is not just simply glorified for who he is, but what he has done for our redemption. And because of this, there is this climax at the end of the age when Christ is revealed from heaven in which we just gawk at his glory because he is our he is the substance of our love song that the 144,000 sing about and only they know. And Revelation talks in the next chapter about the song of Moses and, and it's, talk, it's that song of deliverance that specifically applies to the saints. That's my song. That's my testimony. That's your song, your testimony. That's your love song that Jesus has birthed in your heart because he redeemed you. And so there's something absolutely beautiful about this idea that Jesus left the glory of heaven in order to earn my redemption so that now he is exalted above every name, every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. Above everything, he is now exalted, not just because of the fact that he is God, but because he has earned my eternal redemption. And so he's seated. Now we get to chapter two and we, chapter one ends with this just phenomenal. He's the head over everything for the church, etc. And then he says, as for you, what a contrast. Here is Jesus highly exalted. As for you, eh. You get this, as for you, you weren't alive, you weren't exalted, you weren't resurrected with this dunamis resurrection power of God, you, you were dead in your sins and in your transgressions. So you see the contrast. And it says you were actually objects of God's wrath, verse 4, objects of his wrath. You were controlled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the children of disobedience. Satan is at work in every lost sinner. They are actually ensnared, scripture says, to do his will. They are held captive by him. They have, he has blinded their eyes to the light of the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so... We, as a result of being dead, we are objects of his wrath. So God, by his love, raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. What? To be raised up, what does that mean? We're no longer what? We're no longer dead. But what does it mean for us to be seated with him. Where's Jesus seated in the heavenlies? At the right hand of God. What significance is that? What's the right hand of God? Well, how significant is that? Go ahead. Tell me. I'm anxious to know. What does it mean? It means that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forever. Okay. The, the significance of God's right hand, that is a position then to receive that, but it is, that is the highest place of authority to be at the right hand. When Joseph was at the right hand of Pharaoh, okay, 
and was ruler over everything in Egypt. And in that same way, Jesus has become the head of the church and ruler over everything for the Father. At the end of the age, he turns the kingdom over to the Father. So what then is the significance of us being seated with him? We have access to that power. Okay, remember, look back at chapter 1. The significance of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. He was exalted far above every title that can be given in this present age and the age to come. Place of exaltation. Jesus reigns. Mm -hmm. We are now seated with him. Now, in this age, spiritually... I am actually seated with him in the heavenlies. And as a result of that, I have access to every blessing that Christ has. Every blessing as a co-heir of this kingdom. Okay? And that is where I am in Christ. Because I am in Christ, I have access to all of that. I have access to the throne of grace. The dividing wall of hostility has been removed by the Spirit It says in chapter 2, through him, the Spirit, uh, we both have access, well, through him, Christ rather, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So we now, there's no uh, curtain. There is simply us standing before God. And as the author of Hebrews says, we are not just here praying But when we pray, we are actually before the throne of mercy, the throne of grace. That is where we are at. Now, I don't want to try and unwrap that too much um, because the scripture doesn't do that. So, but it is there in Christ, in the heavenlies, that I have access to every spiritual blessing. Okay? Everything. I am, I, I am not this helpless little child walking around earth just being beaten down by the devil or beaten down by the world or circumstances in general. No, I, I, I am seated with Christ and have access to everything as an heir to the throne. Now, that doesn't mean that I will one day become God like the Mormons believe or that I will one day have equal power with Jesus. It's not, that's not what this is saying, okay? It is simply there that I have access to everything, every inheritance that I have. Now, when we begin to meditate on that, that should excite us. That should excite us because we will, Jesus said, be of good courage, I have overcome the world. And if he has overcome the world and he reigns because he's seated, we're with him. So what does that mean? That means by faith, we too, being in him, can overcome the world. We are not at the mercy of this world and being tossed around like a, like a, a chew toy in the mouth of a, a Rottweiler. That is not us. That is not the inheritance of the saints. I can walk through the fire and the water with great joy. The world can't do that. 
because they have no hope outside of this life. But my life is hidden with Christ in God. Anyway, um, and, and so that is the significance then of this concept of being raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Um, well, there's just so much more that we could get into just before verse 10, but we are going to move on because as we move into <coughs> chapter 3, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Another indication, maybe this was a circular letter, because of course for three years they would know this, but he's, but he's realizing that this is going well beyond. Did you remember Acts 19 when, G, when Paul was preaching for three years in Ephesus that everyone in the province of Asia heard the gospel? Ephesus was a crossroads for trade. People went through Ephesus and they apparently listened to Paul. And everyone heard the gospel. Epaphras and went to Colossae and planted that church. But everybody had heard the gospel. And so many people he may not have personally met or maybe met as they were in a crowd. We don't know. But so it, my, my point really here is Paul digresses because he interrupts himself. Oh, by the way, did you not know? And he picks it up when he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And he gets into this other prayer that we would have power for our faith in Christ and for our love to be rooted in Christ. All right, now I need to move on to chapter four. Um, and uh, I realize I did not give you guys a break and my apologies, I, I forgot I should have done that a half hour ago. But um, so with us running out of time, can we just sit tight and hang on as we move through this last bit here? Um, in chapter four, then, he gets into application. So the first three chapters are very theological, um, and even the Ephesians probably walked away from chapter one with questions about election, and I'm sure we do too. And Paul's purpose is not to answer all of the questions that could be generated about this, but rather to simply highlight God's grace. This is for the praise of his glorious grace, okay? That if, if election does anything other than that for you, you are probably asking the question like, um, it's arbitrary. What about the non-elect? And those things outside of this correlation between election and faith. And there are many questions, but I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's a non-issue outside of that correlation. So if we see this, that he chose us in him, there should be this concept, God loved me this much, he chose me. And I don't understand everything about that. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children to obey him. I don't understand this completely, but I am amazed that he initiated and chose me. Thank you, God. I do not deserve this. Um, as we move to chapter 4, then there is this emphasis on our unity um, and the overflow of this application then of what Christ has done for me, that I was dead and now I'm alive. And now with the Jews and Gentiles, there is no hostility, there's no barrier. Um, if we are in Christ, 
And there is now one covenant. Christ is the head of the church. We are his building. We are actually rising up to become a holy temple in which the spirit of God indwells, lives in. And how then do we grow up into that building? That's the subject of this, of all of chapters four, five, and six. This is how we are to be built up as this building, this holy temple in the Lord. And he starts and ends with this concept of love, forgiving one another, being humble, being compassionate, bearing with one another. At the end of chapter four, how does he conclude it? He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. But he starts off with this idea of unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He talks about the unity that exists in the body of Christ. And how do we bring about this unity? It is a paradox. We actually do it through our diversity. How is there unity in the body of Christ? Because we are so different. If we were all the same, this concept of unity, if we all dressed the same, looked the same, did the same things, excuse me, but how boring would that be? But this, it would be easy to love. It would be easy to get along, I, I guess. And, but when we're different, it calls forth something within us to go beyond me and go beyond what's easy and fight hard to preserve this unity. But there's diversity because not only are we different, but we are actually gifted differently and we actually need one another. I need you, Diego, in my life because God has a deposit in you that is not in my life or not nearly as strong in my life and I need that in you. And as we get to know each other over the year, coming years, we're going to see that more and more. And I'm going to benefit more and more from that. And from Mickey Lana, I need you in my life because you're gifted differently than you, than me. And there's, there's this depth of compassion, for example, in you that I know I need in my life. And I see that in my wife. And it's like that has just for me been a constant challenge and call to go deeper into the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And so we are different and we're, we're gifted differently. Um, and those gifts are, are the result of Christ dispensing his grace. Okay. And it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Who is he? The very one who ascended and descended. That is Jesus Christ himself, which by the way, if you were to go back to this Psalm, Psalm 68, that it's quoted from, he if you go back to the verse, or it's either one or two verses before, you realize that it is Yahweh himself. This is a clear reference to Jesus being Yahweh, by the way. So he, he chose some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Now, the way the Greek is worded, it, it, it's what they call the uh, Graham Sharp Rule. And pastors and teachers should be hyphenated. I realize that for the sake of what's commonly worded today, the fivefold ministry, I will use that phrase. Um, but let's realize that biblically it's a fourfold ministry because pastors are teachers and teachers are pastors. Now, the benefit of this is that every pastor should know how to teach the word and teach it well. And every teacher of the word should have a heart for the people of God. 
And if a pastor does not know the word and is adept at teaching it, he should not be a pastor. And if a teacher does not have a heart for the church and the people of God and truly love them and care for them, he should not be a teacher. He has a lot of knowledge, but he's not qualified to be a teacher because these are pastor teachers. Maybe some are more gifted pastoring than others and some are more gifted in teaching. But regardless, the teacher has a pastoral heart and the pastor has a teaching heart. Well, because the Greek way the Greek is, it says he gave some to be apostles, some to be evangelists, some to be uh, some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. It doesn't say and some to be pastors and some to be teachers. And because of that Greek rule, therefore the way it's some, the way you see that parallelism, therefore the last two are to be connected. Some to be pastors and teachers, pastors and teachers together. Okay. It does have the end, yes. Um, so, but if it was fivefold, it would say some to be pastors, some and some to be teachers. Right. Now, I, I'm not like super picky on that. So you'll hear me talk about the fivefold ministry. But just understand that every pastor needs to have a teaching heart, and every teacher needs to have a pastoral heart. That's his point. Okay. The purpose then is for them to be able to equip the saints for a work of ministry. This work of ministry is going to be defined by the grace that Christ has dispensed to them that verse 7 talked about, okay? He apportioned grace to all of us, and it is the job of the fourfold ministry then to prepare us and equip us. We are, if you will, the equipment managers. That's my job for you. I'm your equipment manager. It is my job to say, hey, here... Whatever size bat you use uh, in baseball, then you choose that bat, but let me show you how to swing it. Let me help you in this. Now, you're going to find that if you're gifted in evangelism, um, I love evangelism, but that's not my, my niche or my special call, but I love evangelism. I love doing walking up to people I don't know and sharing Christ with them. I just realized that the anointing on my life for evangelism is not as great as those who actually hold the office of an evangelist. Or, or who are gifted in this. So I love to learn from them, and I love to watch them and listen to them, okay? And because I have a tendency to teach the gospel rather than preach it, if you will. Um, and anyway, if you understood that. So the five, fourfold ministry then helps us, all of us, use our equipment better. They equip us for a work of ministry. So that means that your calling in Christ, worthy of the calling you have received, that calling is to be in Christ and follow him, comes with a secondary calling then of this type of service, whatever that might be. And that ministry, that service, may very well change throughout your life. But it's the fourfold ministry's job, description even, to help you walk in that, okay? whatever that might be, until, excuse me, let me turn there, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining, let me, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge, okay? That word until means 
that this fourfold ministry must continually be established on earth until the church is unified in faith and knowledge and that the church has become fully mature. How many of you believe that the church of Jesus today is fully mature? Any hands? So what does that tell you about the fourfold ministry? We still need it. We still need it. There are other reasons why I disagree with those who say apostles aren't for today, but there are not the 12 apostles who have been entrusted with the sitting at the feet of Jesus and seeing his miracles and called to preserve the truths of the gospel. Okay, There are those 12, but then there are other apostles such as Barnabas, such as Timothy, um, others, possibly James, the brother of Jesus, called as, el- called as apostles. And there are apostles today. Um, there's some disagreement by exactly what an apostle is. My purpose is not to talk about that, but however we define apostle, evangelist, excuse prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher, we need them to build up the body of Christ. All right. Our goal then in doing this is that we're no longer going to be like children, like little infants tossed back and forth by the waves of false teachings. Okay. Which means that these false teachings have more to don't just have to do with knowledge, with theology, as we would define theology, as factual truth, but actually also walking in that truth. It has to do with application. Faith is not just factual, it is relational. Knowledge of Jesus Christ until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge is not just knowing about Jesus. It is that intimacy we are called to have with him. That is the knowledge, that, and we see that like in Second Peter, First Peter, and how the, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's just not a factual knowledge. It is a relational knowledge, okay? So, I'm going to suggest to you that we become mature, not just by knowing the truth, but by experiencing it and living in it and seeing this faith grow as a result of trials and hardships and see our knowledge of Jesus grow because he has become so endeared to us. We love him and love is the essence of this concept of knowledge in, in Jesus Christ. I am now going to skip to the very last chapter. Forgive me. I know some of you may have wanted me to touch on chapter five, but I I want us to conclude with this idea. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We encounter these three strength or power words again. The, The word that we come across here, be strong, is now a verb. In chapter one, verse 19, it was a noun the incomparably great power for us who believe. That's dunamis. It's the verb form of dunamis. It would be the word empower, okay? So be empowered in the Lord and in the might of his strength or the strength of his might, okay? So three words here that have to do with power. I had this idea that by being in Christ and us being hidden in Christ in the heavenlies, is our access to power. It's our access to being able to overcome the world. And so then he segues into this concept of the full armor of God. He talks about this struggle, this cosmic struggle, not a physical struggle, 
with flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual struggle. There are forces of darkness. There are demons who are rulers, who are authorities, who are world rulers of darkness, which means these demons of darkness operate behind the world rulers of our day, the physical world rulers, maybe even to the degree of possessing them, and but they operate through them, and they are strong forces in this world. They are world rulers. That's the Greek, that's the literal translation of the Greek there, world rulers of darkness, and uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Okay? Now, what you find here for this armor of God is spiritual weapons that, that we need. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, that breastplate of righteousness can be either Christ's righteousness or our acts of righteousness. Our acts of righteousness are seen as fine white linen in the book of Revelation. So I'd, I would lean either way with this breastplate of righteousness. Um, the Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So this isn't just something that God gives to me because the shield of faith is something that I exercise the, my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It is me who is actually taking the steps to share the gospel. Sharing the gospel of peace is viewed as part of the armor of God. Whatever that would look like on your feet, that's the gospel of peace. That gospel of peace is on my feet because I go. It has impacted me, and because of that, while going, I make disciples. It's, it's part of the way I live. While I'm going, about in my day, I, I need to make money for my business. But I tell you what, there is a major goal even beyond that, and that is to make disciples. And I'm going to encourage you, make sure that your feet are shod with the preparation of gospel of peace. And that is not just, of course, peace amongst men. This is peace with God. This is reconciliation with the Father because we've been estranged because they are dead in their transgressions and sins. And they, as you, need to no longer be objects of God's outpoured wrath. Therefore, the answer that Christ has given us is what? Remember, propitiation. But now we are, by his grace, we're raised up and seated with Christ. And they too can be overcomers reigning in life. So make sure that your feet are shod with the preparation of God. The shield of faith. And this is when we lift up the shield of faith. Every flaming arrow of the evil one. Have you ever seen movies in which the archers, I, I just love the choreography. If that's the synchronous how they do it in synchrony, whatever word I'm looking for here. And they all together stick their arrows into the flame because they've been doused in some sort of oil and they lift it up. They lift it up like this and then they give another command and it's at this perfect angle. It's like no, oh, oh, a little bit more. You know, they all lift it up at the same angle. I love the, the choreography of that. And then they shoot the arrows and you see it. And they usually do it when it's like almost dark and you see these flaming arrows coming at the enemy. And those flaming arrows are not sent by the good guys in this thing. They're sent by the evil one and they come at you and the shield is lifted up 
and apparently doused in water. And that is one of the things that they would do because many of the shields would be partially made of wood. And when it would hit that wood, it would extinguish the arrow. I can't imagine a a shield made of wood doused in water, however, how heavy that would be. Regardless, um, the arrow is put out and it does not harm you. Satan's goal is to, you are in his crosshairs. He wants to take you out. He wants to neutralize you and his attack is going to be on your faith. But it is the very thing that he wants to snuff out in your life that you use against him. As you lift up the shield of faith and extinguish that and you call upon the Lord and you walk in because faith is relational. You walk in this intimacy with the father and you can by that intimacy And we see that intimacy now with Jesus in the wilderness that I'm preaching through. You see this intimacy and he extinguishes every flaming arrow, every barb, every attack of the enemy. It's with the word of God and he sources the father. And as a result, every attack, accusation, everything, every lie that the enemy gives that feeds Jesus is put out. Now, we, with our faith in Jesus, lift up that shield. And I'm just going to tell you, faith is going to be the key. With every attack of the enemy, guys, faith is going to be the key. Call on the name of the Lord. Never give up. Seek to find joy in the midst of that trial that you're facing. And that arrow that when it hit you, it hurt you so much. You want to go to triage and God says, no, stay on the front lines. I am with you. Let me heal you. Lift up your shield of faith. Stand firm against the devil. This is battle. The devil's desire is to take you out, but you by faith, it says faith in the son of God. First John five, was it verse four or verse five? By faith in the son of God, you have overcome the world. And so I'm going to encourage you, lift up that shield of faith. Never let it down. Stay committed. Stay firm. Keep pursuing Jesus. It's when the, when we start licking our wounds, when we start being so concerned about our owie that that's what we, I, Anyway, we, that's what I told my kids, we called them. Well, let me pray for your owie. And, but honestly, for us, these are, these are owies. These are, these are hurts. And I'm not demeaning the pain they can bring, but the glory they can bring God when we understand our response needs to be faith. And what God can, when we believe, then God opens doors and he does the miraculous and things beyond our understanding in the midst of those trials and through those trials. And here's one thing that I'm going to conclude with because I'm already over, but prayer is not a weapon. Prayer is not seen as another weapon you pull out of the arsenal. Um, Paul, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, uh, I have weapons of righteousness in my right and in my left. Prayer is not seen as a weapon. Prayer is a thing unto itself that I would suggest is an aspect of every part of that armor, is an aspect of every part. Prayer is us engaging in battle in which we lift the shield of faith, in which we find ourselves. How else do you put on the armor of God? I know some people go to extremes and they actually envision themselves putting on little armor and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and now I'm set. That happens in prayer, doesn't it? 
That is how our heart is prepared and readied for battle, right? And, and all kinds of prayers and requests, he says. And so prayer isn't just preparation for the battle. It is the battle. It is that it, it, it saturates everything that we do because prayer is when I source the Spirit or source the Father, my relationship with Christ, and I'm reminded again that by being in Christ and seated with Him, I rule and reign in this life and I have victory over the world as I exercise this thing of faith in prayer. And so prayer is not just another weapon that I, you know, I tuck in my back pocket or in my belt. It's not like my Batman belt where you know, I'm just going to pull out that prayer now. But it, it, it's, it's an aspect of everything that I do and everything that you do. Okay? And so I'm just going to give you this, this challenge. We are in this cosmic battle. Not only is your life at stake, but others are as well. God has given you everything you need to be victorious. Everything. It's at your fingertips. Why? Because you are in Christ. And as we discover that, and as we continue to uh, remain intimate with Him in prayer, because remember, in prayer, we are actually before the throne of grace. We're not just in our bedrooms. We are before the throne of grace. That is where the battle is won. Okay? Pray, pray, and never give up. Never. Father, thank you for just the authority and the power that Ephesians talks about that are ours in Christ, that was exerted in raising Christ from the dead, exerted in us in raising us and seating us with him, and that, we, that, we, that is ours in this battle for life. And I, I just ask you, Father, show us how to engage in this battle in which we see the enemy defeated every time. And, and though we may get hurt, God, we're just saying right now, God, I refuse to leave the front lines. I'm not going to go back to triage because, Jesus, you're my healer. You're the healer of this hurt in my heart right now. And I can find joy even in the midst of it. And I'm going to move forward and do so aggressively because I am in Christ and I rule and reign in this life. And all of that inheritance is mine. It's been allotted to me. So, Father, I just ask you, give us not just greater understanding of these truths, but a greater ability to walk in these truths every day that we find in this book of Ephesians. In Jesus' name.